Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Locked In Science for another week. It is half an hour of science coming from our locked in home uh, to yours. Or if you're not in the locked in zones in Melbourne and Mitchellshire, um, well, maybe you're listening to us uh, outside your locked in zone, in which case, lucky you. (laughs) My name is Claire and this week on the show, I had a think the other day that there are some stories that pass me by, some stories that from Stu and Chris that I don't really get at the time that I think deserve another playing. So I'm going into the vault and bringing back one of Chris's stories that I don't think I fully understood at the time. I'm going to have a little bit of a re-listen to it. It is about matter and antimatter. So, you know, as Chris tells me, it is one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the universe, why there is more matter than antimatter. So I think it's time to revisit this important question. So you, you, the first time you listened, you were a bit antimatter, <laughs> and now you do, you think it does matter now. Is that and what you're telling I think, us? Now I think it it matters. Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. That's so great. Chris Lassig, greatest hits of matter and antimatter. And Stu, what do you have for us this week? Well, something that definitely matters is Science Week is coming up. Oh, that is very exciting news. In a couple of weeks, we're still charging ahead with Science Week this year. And there's a couple of events on during Science Week. Uh, one of them's called uh, Possible Impossibles. Oh. And it's all about the kind of research and topics and subject matter that is really interesting scientists at the moment and, and driving them to you know, to actually explore what is possible in the future that seems impossible now. And I got to catch up with Dr. Kim Johnson, who is from La Trobe University, and she's a plant biology expert. And I got to bring up that it's the International Year of Plant Health. Oh, Stu, it is your favourite year. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone else is having a really bad 2020, but you're just making lemonade with the lemons that you've got on to you. With the healthy, healthy lemons. <laughs> the healthy lemons. And look, I, I'm going to get to talk to Kim about her work and what she's got coming up for the Possible Impossibles event during Science Week, which is in coming up in August, and how she's trying to get people to, you know, to make beans as popular as wheat in people's right. diets. And um, also thinking about what we are going to eat in the future and how that might expand our ideas of what is food and what is not food. So there's some really interesting stuff in there, and you can actually sign up to get a taster box from this event, uh, The Taste of Tomorrow. They will post you out some, some tasty treats to your home of possible future foods. Oh, I love that. That sounds yeah, incredible. Fantastic. 
I love that even even though we're all socially distant and some of us are in lockdown, this um, National Science Week, we can still take part in some home experiments. Yay, science. Yay, science. So National Science Week, it is um, August 15 to 23. And if you want to find out what's happening online, just head to scienceweek.net.au. On with the show. may have heard me mention on the show previously that this is the International Year of Plant Health, amongst other things going on. Plant Health was intended to be, you know, a big scientific focus for this year. And I've got with me on the show today, uh, Dr. Kim Johnson, who's from La Trobe University. She's a plant biology expert and looking into the future of food and obviously plants being the basis of all of our food doesn't really matter what you eat it's going to have some reliance on plants at some point so thanks for joining us on the show uh kim you're very welcome so i was saying you know you're a plant biology expert you've been working on figuring out how plants can sense and respond to stress what sort of how do plants do that well plants can't move so i mean they have to be where they are. They're stuck in their environment. So they can't, if it's cold, they can't go inside. They can't put a jumper on. So they have to adapt. And plants are amazing at doing this. So they have to adapt to their environment. And often that environment can be quite stressful. I think we've all been very aware recently of drought and bushfires. And these plants have to survive in storms. At the moment, our climate is becoming increasingly variable um, and we know that because of climate change. So these plants are having to adapt and survive these conditions. And that's stressful. So that's something I'm really interested in is how they not only feel this stress, but also how they respond. Well, this is one of the things about agriculture in Australia too, is that a lot of it is reliant on predictable weather patterns for when people sow their crops and that sort of thing. They only get irrigated by rainfall. So if the weather patterns even shift a little bit, it's going to be very confusing for, for farmers to even work that out, wouldn't it be? It really is. And that's something that's already been noticed. So the timing of when it rains has shifted. So farmers are having to sow their seeds at slightly different times so that they're not flowering, for example, when it's really, really hot, because that just means that they don't get a very good yield. So we're really having to change our farming practices, but also we need to do research to understand how the plants are also changing in response to these different weather patterns. What sort of responses do plants have to stressful situations? When it gets too hot, what do they do? <laughs> it's often not great. So, you know, they try to shut down some of their processes, which in the case of flowering means that they don't set as much seed. So they limit, therefore, how much they reproduce just to go into survival mode. And, but other things that I'm really interested in is, is things like how do they strengthen their stems, for example. So if there's lots of wind, then plants are actually pretty good at over time adjusting that stem strength to be even more sturdy. So they become more resistant. And that's what I think is fascinating is actually they can sort of toughen themselves up if they experience some of these stresses over time. And that therefore means that we can probably make them a bit hardier and more resistant to some of these stresses in the future. 
while they're reacting to the to the stress of say wind or something like that does that make them less productive as crop plants it does depend on the plant so plants can either make themselves sort of more flexible or more stiff and that can influence the yield for example if they get a little bit of stress very early on in their life that actually means they're more productive later on um, but if it happens later on when they don't have much chance to to sort of adapt over time and respond, then yes, it can limit their productivity. I'm a horticultural scientist by by training, um, and I was always taught to, um, when planting tomatoes, to let them get a bit stressed before you plant them out, and that makes them flower and produce more fruit, which I always found an interesting uh, way to look at it. You make them a bit stressed and they and they sort of go into panic mode and try and grow as much seed as they possibly can. Yeah, this is a, something amazing. There's a Japanese uh, cultural practice in agriculture where they go and stomp on their crops early in their life and then that makes them produce more, which I think is fascinating, and all these people going out and standing on all their plants just to make them more productive later on. It seems counterintuitive. <laughs> it does. Um, so you're also working on things like trying to make some plants more popular in, you know, in people's diets, I suppose. What sort of plants are you trying to increase the popularity of? So this is part of our um, National Science Week events that we're running called The Taste of Tomorrow. So we're really looking at what foods that we could be eating in future that are more sustainable and more nutritious. And like for me, one of the most amazing plants are the legumes. So, you know, beans and pulses, not only do they enrich soils, so they actually add nutrients back into the soils to make other plants more productive um, in crop rotations, for example. They are just so nutritionally fantastic. They're full of protein, they're full of dietary fibre, they're just full of great oils. They're superfoods, really fantastic. So they're one of the ones that we're highlighting, but, you know, we're really exploring what else could we be eating um, rather than some of these traditional crops, or even if it is the traditional crops, how can we make them even better for us? Can we add, for example, extra fiber into our wheat so that we can do the same things but, but be healthier because of it? So would the idea of getting people to eat more pulses, are you looking at how they're used and maybe how they could be used differently? So just we're sort of taking a two-pronged approach. So we're looking at what little shifts maybe people can make in their diets now to adopt more nutritious foods, but also looking at, okay, if all of us do that, then we need to invest more research into crops such as legumes because they haven't had the same intensive breeding that crops that are more commonly used like wheat have. So we've been breeding wheat for thousands of years and therefore they're, they're very productive, they're very efficient crops. But with legumes, they just have less attention. So we need to do a lot more research on these to make them yield as, as much as they can. So, yeah, I mean, as far as wheat growing, there's, there's dozens or hundreds maybe of varieties of wheat, but there's probably not that many different varieties of, you know, chickpeas or lentils or anything like that. Well, there are, but they're, they're not as um, well characterised, I guess. So we just need to, and, and I agree with you, they're, things like wheat, there's really good stock centres. So they've got good resources there that people can go and tap into. Whereas maybe these legume ones are out there, but we just don't know where they are, who's got them. There's not a really good international list that we can um, tap into. So with, you know, those kind of resources, as well as just extra effort to going into 
understanding how these grow, you know, we can really make um, a big improvement in producing these more sustainable, nutritious foods. And one of the one of the things you mentioned about the pulses too is that they improve the soil. Now that's to do with the bacteria that live in the roots of the plant. Have you looked into improving those bacteria to make the plants more able to to grab that nitrogen out of the atmosphere? Look, I think this is a really fascinating area that is just getting a lot of attention at the moment, which is fantastic because there it's so complex. I mean, we think about the gut microbiome, the gut bacteria that we have in our own body. That's nothing compared to what is in the soil. And these plants, like I was saying, I'm fascinated by this interaction of plants with their environment. And this soil environment is one that is just so interesting because as you say, the plants are interacting with these bacteria, with fungi, and there's this communication going on between them all the time. And that really influences how these plants grow. And so this area I think is fascinating and we're going to see a lot more, a lot of development in that space in future. And I guess there's probably you know, some, well, there's probably a lot of interest in how, how that communication's happening between the plants and the microbes in the soil and how do they actually communicate with, with each other? How do those messages get sent between them? Absolutely. I mean, with the legumes, so they have to you know, know the bacteria is there, then they create this house around that bacteria and capture them in, and then they have this communication, which is an exchange of resources from between the plant and the bacteria. I mean, it's so complex and just you know, even getting our head around that will take many more years of research, let alone trying to improve that process. And it's really, as you were saying about the, um, the gut flora in, in humans, we're only really sort of starting to think about that, but the, uh, the, the extent of soil life is, you know, incredible. Hmm. And it's really with some of these new technologies. So being able to sequence a lot of DNA that we can do now more readily that we can start to understand really what's in there. Well, yeah, I know, you know, thinking about the bacteria that we used to, that we used to um, find in these things, like you you describe the color and that's about it. (laughs) Um, You wouldn't really be able to say what it was um, beyond that. Yeah. The idea that we can sequence them and figure out exactly how many different types there are is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, and um, how they're changing to different conditions as well, which I think is really fascinating. Well, yeah, I guess the if the climate's changing and the plants are changing, then all of the soil biology must be changing as well. Absolutely. Now, one thing I, I did um, notice uh, that you have been um, potentially sending out to people is is a box with some interesting-sounding foodstuffs in there, including... Okay, fake meat. I, you know, was a vegetarian for many years myself, and I've I've had a fair bit of fake meat over to, over the years. Um, but tell me about insect flour. <laughs> so we have a mystery box of future foods that we're sending out to anyone who registers for our Science Week events, and this is going to be pretty fun. I think. I think it might be quite confronting for a few people to see what they're going to find in there, particularly. Yes, and potentially some insect-related products. But we really want to highlight the fact that, you know, insects are eaten in a lot of different cultures. 
not Australian culture necessarily, but many places eat insects on a daily basis. And they're a very good source of, of iron and B12 and protein. So, you know, let's, let's give it a go. And they can be quite sustainable. I kind of feel like um, insects have a public relations problem <laughs> and that may, maybe the names of the insects need to be, you know, they're really not different to things like, you know, shellfish and crustaceans, but we still have this hang up about them. Maybe if we called them not grasshoppers, but land prawns or something, people <laughs> might be more happy to, to chew on one. Well, that's it. I mean, yeah, like you say, those shellfish are just insects in the sea. So we readily eat them. Uh, we can also eat land insects. Why not? Um, it's really like I was, um, I mentioned before, we want to, people to really explore the foods that they eat, um, the choices that they make about those foods. What do they base those choices on? Is it um, about just something that tastes good or is it about it being nutritious or is it about the environment and how sustainable the production of that food was? And let's explore everything we can. That sounds really super interesting. And if people are interested in your Science Week events, how can they find out about that? So we have a website. Um, it's www.tastetomorrow.edu.au and you can sign up for our events on that page and we will send you your future food box. Awesome. I hope a lot of our listeners will be signing up. You'll be inundated with requests. Um, thank you for joining us. We should wrap it up there. Thank you, Dr. Kim Johnson from La Trobe University. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Thank you, Stu. Now, one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the universe is why is there more matter than antimatter? Is this um, the first part of a joke? Because no, it's no? it's a serious question. It's very oh, serious question. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, yeah. Why did well, the antimatter cross the universe? No, it's not. It didn't. <laughs> Stuart, it didn't. It didn't because no, it disappeared. It disappeared. Because it disappeared. Look, this is an important question because this question is basically it's the heart of explaining why we exist. Because, of course, we're made out of matter. So if there wasn't more matter than antimatter, we wouldn't exist. So it's, it's quite pertinent to our current state of being, some would What's say. the matter with you? <sighs> so, look. Now, we've basically known since the 1930s that every particle of matter has a kind of an evil twin, uh, what we call an antiparticle. So antimatter particles, they are literally a mirror version of matter particles, but with opposite charge as well. So uh, like an electron, for instance, has a negative charge. So an anti-electron has positive charge, which is why it's also known as a positron. Okay? Right. Got it. But what do you, what do you know about antimatter? What's one of the things you know about antimatter from science fiction? Well, oh, uh, well. There's all sorts of science fictions that, you know, you can make starships fly with various antimatter in different stories and stuff. But one thing I do know is if, if antimatter comes in contact with matter, it, dis it all disappears or it all explodes or something. That's right. The, um, because they're opposites, they cancel each other out. They annihilate and their combined mass turns into huge amounts of energy via E equals MC squared. 
Um, but the thing is that it also right. works the other way. So if you have a lot of energy, then you can turn that energy into pairs of particles and antiparticles. So this is where we get confused because say at the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang, there was a whole lot of energy and creating all kinds of stuff. So why was it, did it create an unequal amount of matter and antimatter? Because you'd think that if you always get you know, a pair of each, then they should be exactly the same numbers. So this is, uh, this is a big puzzle. Uh, basically, to solve it, we have to try and find somewhere in the basic laws of physics where there is not a symmetry between matter and antimatter. We've got to find somewhere where that symmetry is broken. Uh, it might sound like a weird thing. It does to me, certainly. But such symmetries have, in fact, been found. Some small sizes of this symmetry have been found. In the 1960s, there was, they, were, they first found this indication of some asymmetry, but it was just it was too small to account for the what we see in the entire universe. But it's, it's a precedent for what we should look for. So we need to keep looking. Now, a paper recently published in the journal Nature by the T2K collaboration, it's, like a, it's based in Japan and involves nearly 500 people. And they were looking to neutrinos to try and find this asymmetry. So you, I'm sure you've heard of neutrinos before. They are fundamental particles. They're very unique among the particles that we know of. They have zero electric charge, hence the neutr bit in the name. Um, and they have a very teeny tiny mass. It was thought for a long time that they had no mass, but in the late 90s it was figured out that they had a very small mass. Um, they only interact with other particles via the weak nuclear force, and this makes them very hard to detect. So they're all over the place. They're, you know, they're flying through us all the time, but they generally don't interact with things, and so you don't know they're there. But this is actually a kind of a good thing. Because they're so unique and so hard to detect, it means that there's a lot we don't know about them. There's a lot still to learn. So they're a great place to look for new, exciting physics. Uh, what else do we know? Uh, we know that they come in, there are three different types of neutrino, or what we call flavors. Flavors, did you say? Flavors. Okay. Oh, right. So your chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla. Well, they're actually electron, muon, and tau on, but you know, similar. The, the... <laughs> The Neapolitan of neutrino. Exactly. Neutrinopolitan. I was about to say something. I was going to say, unlike Neapolitan ice cream, they can transform into a different flavour as they travel through space. But if you bring your Neapolitan ice cream home from the supermarket and it melts a bit, it's probably going to mix up anyway, isn't it? That's right. So I mean, chocolate's the only one that's ever going to get eaten anyway, right? Yeah, that fluorescent pink one, I don't know what it is. It's not... It's not strawberry, it's just fluorescent pink. I don't know what it is. Anyway, so in this experiment, this is the T2K experiment, what it did, it involved, they created a beam of neutrinos by firing protons into a piece of graphite. Um, so this, um, basically, this nuclear, nuclear reaction when they fired the protons at the graphite, it gave off a beam of neutrinos, which were then detected 295 kilometers away, <gasps> um, deep underneath Mount Ikeno, what? In Japan. How do they detect them? They have... It's a detector called the Super Kamiokande. It is a big a big tub of water. It's 50 million litres of ultra-pure water. Um, 50 million litres, if I convert that into standard units, that is 20 Olympic swimming pools. Whoa. And, under a mountain? Yeah, under a mountain. It's basically it's so other stuff doesn't get in. Other cosmic rays and things don't get in and, and mess it up. So they just had this, yeah, really pure water, 20 Olympic swimming pools of really pure water, ultra pure, sorry, not really pure, ultra pure. 
And essentially what will happen is occasionally a neutrino will come through. It will hit a nucleus in, in that water and it'll knock out a charged particle. Um, and these charged particles can be detected because they're moving so fast. So this is where it gets even weirder because light, you know, the speed of light is the fastest speed in the universe, but that's the speed of light in a vacuum. Inside, in water or another substance, light slows down. Mm-hmm. So uh, when something, when a charged particle moves faster than the speed of light in the material that it's in, then it gives off the equivalent of a sonic boom, but in, in light. And so it wow. gives off this kind of eerie glow called Cherenkov radiation. If you've ever seen a picture of a nuclear reactor, yeah. like the inside of a nuclear reactor, there's often a blue glow. And that yep. is particles being given off and moving faster than the speed of light in the water and hence giving off this weird glow. So this is what they do. They look for some light being given off by a neutrino having to strike a, a nucleus in this 20 Olympic swimming pools. I know it sounds pretty unlikely. It is pretty unlikely, to be honest, <laughs> because they, from the paper they published, they, um, they ran this experiment between 2009 and 2018, and they collected 105 detection events, which they analysed. Now, 90 of these detections were neutrinos, and 15 of them were anti-neutrinos. So they basically detected a very big imbalance between neutrinos and anti-neutrinos. And this was at about a 95% confidence level. Um, so it was a huge difference. Uh, so this is a really good indication that they might have a clue to what's actually going on. Uh, it does, of course, need to be confirmed. Science always needs to be replicated. Uh, plus 95% confidence in terms of particle physics, that's nowhere near good enough. You need to get down to like, you know, 99.9999999% confident before someone will accept it fully. So yeah, they need to basically upgrade their equipment, do a bigger experiment. They are intending to upgrade over the next couple of years, although they're being slowed down a little bit by the current coronavirus pandemic, as are we all. Meanwhile, other new detectors being built that will examine this question. There is a hyper Kamiokande being built, which will be 10 times bigger than the super Kamiokande, if you're impressed by that. I am impressed by that. That is a lot of Olympic swimming pools. That is. In the US, they're also building a detector called the Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment, or DUNE. <gasps> um, oh, wow. I love that acronym. I wonder if there'll, there'll be some sandworms in there as well. Who knows what's going on under the ground? <laughs> but yeah. Hopefully, if the sandworms don't get them, hopefully they will give us some clue to basically why we all exist, why there is uh, more matter than antimatter, and we will have the answer, why are we here? all we have time for on another episode of Locked in Science. Thank you, a big thank you to Dr. Kim Johnson for telling us all about some incredible foods, the foods of the future, the impossible foods that we're going to be eating in the future. Locked in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation uh, and normally recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, but at this time is recorded in the home studios of Claire, Chris and Stu. Locked in Science is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. You can email us. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are there. We are Lost in Science one Or you can find us on uh, the Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. 
or just tune in again next week wherever you find us when Stu, Claire and Chris get locked, locked in, in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.